0: This is The Round's Table. Hey Round's Table listeners, thanks for tuning in to another week on the show. Uh, I'm Kieran Quinn, your host, and today we have another new exciting host to join us from all the way down under. His name is Dr. Daniel Aronov. He's a family physician and general practitioner in Melbourne, Australia, and he's also the host and founder of Evidence-Based Medicine Podcast. And just as a side plug, i got to say, you should tune into this podcast, it's really excellently done and change my practice. I now counsel my patients and my kids on using honey for cough. In fact, I take it myself. And a lot of patients have asked me about magnesium for leg cramps. And it's certainly been informed my practice from that podcast, among the other excellent episodes. So tune in to Evidence-Based Medicine Podcast. Regardless of the fact, we welcome Dr. Dan to the show from all the way in Australia. Dan, thank you for joining us on the table.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Kieran. Uh, It's great to be here. I've been a long-time listener and, I guess, first-time caller, and it's just very exciting to be a part of it. So, thank you. Oh, We're we're happy to have you here, first-time caller. So, let's jump right in, and why don't you introduce us uh, to the article that you chose for this week? So, I'm doing the Compass trial, which made a bit of headlines and has an interesting set of discussion points that I think would be valuable for the show. It stands for cardiovascular outcomes for people using anticoagulation strategies. And it was published in October of 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine.
0: Certainly, I remember this trial made a fair number of headlines and we had discussed it at several different journal clubs. So tell us, Dan, what was the bottom line for this particular
1: study? Well, the bottom line was that rivaroxaban at a dose of 2.5 milligrams twice a day plus low dose aspirin was superior than aspirin alone for preventing cardiovascular disease in those with established cardiovascular disease. But on the other side of the coin, it was associated with increased risk of major bleeding.
0: Ah, so there's the rub uh, when it comes to this age-old question of is more better? And we've covered this on the show before for triple therapy in secondary prevention of stroke. And so we're looking at our medical and moral compass on how we're going to use this evidence to treat coronary artery disease. And yes, Dan, I you know that I operate on the on the puns and, and there they are. We've started the show with the bangs. You
1: encompass a lot of puns, I should say.
0: Ah, oh, excellent. Well a good <laughs> counterpoint. So tell us Dan, why did they conduct this study? These studies cost a lot of money and clearly it's got to be important. There's an underlying rationale to do so.
1: Yeah, so look, I guess we have good evidence now that DOACs, or direct oral anticoagulants or NOAX, as they used to be called, have evidence over warfarin for non-valvular atrial fibrillation, for venous thromboembolism, and just recently for venous thromboembolism in cancer patients. And in most of those studies, they've shown to be superior to warfarin at one, preventing clots, and two, reducing the risk of bleeding compared to warfarin. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have cardiovascular disease, which we know has some sort of thrombus-forming pathology associated with it. We know that heart attacks are probably caused by clots formed in the coronary arteries. And we know that aspirin reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease in those with cardiovascular disease. So for example, aspirin reduces the chance of getting a a cardiovascular disease by 20% in those with established cardiovascular disease, and it reduces death by about 9% in those with established cardiovascular disease. So the question is, would an antithrombotic medication, which also works on the clot, reduce it even further? We had some evidence with warfarin that it was superior at reducing cardiovascular events than just aspirin alone, but it never really gained popularity because the risk of bleeding was so much higher. But now that we know that DOACs have a much more favorable bleeding profile than warfarin, perhaps it's time to revisit this question. And that's exactly what the COMPASS trial has done.
0: I think that sounds entirely reasonable. And we're trying to find new indications for these DOACs. And certainly you just mentioned a whole bunch that have evolved over the last few years. So I think it's a reasonable question. Tell us then, Dan, how did they go about trying to answer this question? What was the design of the study?
1: Okay, so this was a huge trial. It involved 33 countries, 602 clinical centers. So it was a really big deal. They randomized 27 and a half thousand people with established cardiovascular disease into three groups. The first group got rivaroxaban and aspirin. The doses there were 2.5 milligrams BD of rivaroxaban and aspirin was 100 milligrams daily. The second group got just rivaroxaban at 5 milligrams BD, so a much higher dose than the combination group. And the third group just got aspirin alone, which is exactly how we'd manage most cardiovascular disease patients these days. Now, I should mention that they did a run-in phase in this trial because that can sometimes affect our interpretation of the results. So what is a run-in phase? Well, well, I guess the issue that the run-in phase is trying to overcome is what should we do about participants who stop taking their medication say we've enrolled 13,000 to take rivaroxaban and what if about 50% of them stop taking it after a few weeks of the trial so how do you then interpret the results well there's two things you can do the results the first is you can do what's called a per protocol analysis where you exclude anyone who didn't follow the trial protocol perfectly the problem with that is that it doesn't help us figure out well why did they stop the drug? Maybe there's something different in the group that stopped the drug than the other group, in which case we can't really say it's an evenly distributed population. The other issue is with it that we don't like people adjusting their results. So they'd have to nitpick and find out who stopped and who didn't stop, and so they're sitting there adjusting their results, and it, it, it sort of calls into question whether they're using their own sort of biases and beliefs in that adjustment. So one way to get around that is called a run-in phase. But what they do is for two weeks before, they give everyone both a placebo and the active drug, and they see one who develops side effects, two who doesn't tolerate it, and three who doesn't actually take the drug. So they can do that by asking them to bring their packets in at the end of the two weeks, and anyone who has any pills left over, they know wasn't taking the drug every day. But a, a newer way that they're doing this is they've actually got a little chip inside the lid of these pill packets, and they can see who is opening the packet and how often they're opening the packet. So the benefit of that is that you're excluding the people from the trial who aren't likely to be taking the medication every day. So you're not going to run into those people later on in the trial. I guess the flip side of the run-in phase is that it's not the typical population that we see. I mean, our patients are forgetting tablets. They're missing tablets and they're getting side effects. And we're excluding all of those and perhaps that can tip the results in favor of the treatment group. Now, I did not expect that rant to go on for that long. And I'm sorry to all the listeners. That was a bit of boring EBM for your listening. And I I apologize deeply, especially because this is my first go and I'm trying to make a good impression. (laughs)
0: Well, you certainly wowed us with your knowledge of trial methodologies, and I think the point is to take home from all of that is when you use a run-in phase, as you said, you're really trying to get at is this a true effect when you see the differences between the groups, but it's going to be very limited to the population who tolerates this medication and doesn't develop side effects, so the application to your general population or your generalizability is somewhat limited. All right, so tell us what they actually did then following this run-in phase as far as the intervention itself.
1: Right, so they had to have either coronary artery disease or peripheral artery disease or both. And they were very strict. If they were younger than 65, they made sure they had at least disease in two cardiovascular beds or they had to have two other risk factors. So currently smoking, diabetes or renal failure. So these were high risk people, either they were old or over 65 and they had established cardiovascular disease or peripheral vascular disease, or they were younger than 65, they had cardiovascular disease and they had other risk factors. So they then after the running phase, they randomized them into these three groups and the plan was to follow them up for five years, but after an interim analysis at 23 months, they stopped the trial early because it looked like it was in favor of the rivaroxaban and the aspirin group.
0: Okay, I I like the sound of that inclusion and exclusion criteria, it makes sense to target your highest risk group, uh, at least as a first run. So tell us exactly what the intervention groups were.
1: So the first group was randomized to receive rivaroxaban and aspirin, that was a dose of 2.5 milligrams twice a day of rivaroxaban and 100 milligrams daily of aspirin. The second group got rivaroxaban alone, and that was at five milligrams BD, so a higher dose in the combination group. And the third group got aspirin alone, which is exactly how we'd manage our cardiovascular disease patients currently.
0: So you told us about the inclusion and exclusion criteria.
1: What did the actual patients look like who were enrolled in the trial? Yes, yeah, so the average age was sixty eight years old, about eighty percent were male and twenty percent were female. twenty one percent were using tobacco, so I don't know what your rates are over there in in America, but that's significantly higher than our use of tobacco in Australia. Hypertension, 75% had hypertension, 37% had diabetes, 90% of the participants had a history of coronary artery disease, while 27% had a history of peripheral artery disease.
0: And how about their management of that coronary artery disease prior to the intervention drugs, of course, but were they, were they well treated on optimal medical therapy?
1: Right, so 70% were on an ACE inhibitor. You know, 26% were on a calcium channel blocker, 70% were on a beta blocker, and 90% were on statins. So this was, I guess, a a group of people that were on all the, well, most of them were on all the right medications for cardiovascular disease.
0: Yeah, I'd say it's a, a high risk, but at least close to optimally managed group of individuals. So it's helpful to know how to think about this in the application outside the trial. All right. And you said they they followed these people up for a plan of five years. Of course, it was stopped short. But what were they measuring as the primary outcome that called the Data Safety Monitoring Board to stop the trial early
1: for superiority? So the primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death, stroke, or myocardial infarction which I think is very reasonable. So they didn't have all those extra um, MACE criteria like revascularization, things that are quite controversial. Just the real things that patients really care about, death, stroke, and heart attacks. The, the major, I guess, um, adverse effect that they were looking for was a, a composite of major bleeding, and that was fatal bleeding, symptomatic bleeding into a critical organ, surgical site bleeding requiring another operation, or bleeding that led to hospitalization. They had a whole bunch of other outcomes and obviously they split them all up individually, but they were sort of the main two outcomes that were relevant, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely reasonable and, and relevant to what the listeners and what the patients wanna know about. All right, you here, here comes a little pun. Uh, guide us through the results here, Dan.
1: <laughs> Very good. Okay, so the primary outcome, which again was cardiovascular death, stroke or myocardial infarction, happened less in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group than in the rivaroxaban alone group or in the aspirin alone group so in the aspirin alone group this cardiovascular death stroke and myocardial infarction happened in 5.4 percent of the population after 23 months but in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group that happened in 4.1 percent of the population giving us a relative risk reduction of about 25 percent which is not unreasonable Other things to note is that death from any cause was also reduced, and that was statistically significant. So 4.1% of people died after 23 months in the aspirin group, but 3.4% died in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group, again, leading to a relative risk reduction of about 18%, which is quite significant. When you think of the benefit of aspirin over placebo. As I mentioned, there is a 20% reduction in cardiovascular disease over placebo with aspirin. Well, this is showing a 25% reduction over aspirin. And when I mentioned that aspirin reduces death by 9% over placebo, this reduces death by, you know, 18% over aspirin. It seems almost too good to be true. <laughs> it does, it does. But let's now head to the adverse events. So the major bleeding, which I'll just go over again, it was fatal bleeding, symptomatic bleeding into a critical organ, surgical site bleeding requiring another operation, or bleeding that led to hospitalization. So this happened in 1.9% of those in the aspirin alone group. But in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group, it went up to 3.1%. So a relative increase of 70% in major bleeding. But I should mention that there was no difference in fatal bleeding, which is probably the most significant of all the major bleeding criteria. And there was also no difference in intracranial bleeding, which is probably something that would worry me more than any other type of bleeding. So the majority of the increased bleeding was sort of gastrointestinal or skin or injection site sort of bleeding. So make of that what you will there, Kieran.
0: Fair enough. Well, Let's talk about then what you think of these findings and whether you had any thoughts or concerns about how the trial was conducted or anything else that you know came to mind in analyzing this.
1: Well, the the first thing I should mention is this was sponsored by Bayer. They were also involved in the protocol and in the data collection. So that that's just a Bayer. Sorry, is the pharmaceutical company that manufacture of So that's something to consider? I find a lot of people get quite emotional about drug sponsorship. To me. All it makes me do is just look at the methods more critically. And I think the methods hold up. So I don't, I don't think their influence necessarily impacted the results. They might've impacted the methods, but I think the methods hold up. And uh, I think it was a well-conducted trial. So I tend to believe this results. I would have liked to have seen it go for the intended time length of five years. I'm not a fan of stopping trials early. At the end of the day, when we plan all our statistical analyses, we plan it for how long we were planning on running the trial. The analysis wasn't geared to just be adjusted halfway through the trial. So I would have loved to see what would have happened at the end of the five years and whether the results would have held up. Having said that, can you ethically continue a trial now that you know that one group is getting a bigger benefit than the other? I don't know. So that's my thoughts. That's my reflection.
0: I think, Dan, you know, my thoughts are are in line with yours in the sense that we talk a lot about on the show, you know, the effect of stopping trials early often is to overestimate the results. And so this impressive reduction in their primary outcome may be overestimated. And given the trial runs out to five years, things attenuate a little bit and makes it a little less impressive. I think that's important. And the other thing is when we talked about initially with this run-in or wash-in period again you're looking at a really selected population of individuals who are going to tolerate this and not have any you know upfront major bleeding right away from it so again we may even be underestimating the safety
1: outcomes that they report exactly so this is this is likely the best the results are going to be having said that if the results are true You know i always ask myself would i give this to patients and the answer to that is well would i take this for myself if i you know if i was in this situation and i think i would i mean if all else being equal so this is obviously in australia and i don't think anywhere else in the world it's not approved for cardiovascular disease only which means that there would be a large out-of-pocket cost for this medication which might tip me into favor of not taking this drug but, you know, there is some benefit in cardiovascular disease. There is some benefit in death and there is an increase in bleeding, but not the bleedings that I really care about, which are fatal bleedings and intracranial bleedings. So I would probably take this, which means I would mention it to my patients and use a shared informed decision making approach. You know, this can reduce your chance of getting a heart attack by so and so, but at the same time it reduce it increases your chance of bleeding, you know, by seventy percent. What would you, you know, what would you like to do? Well, what I find fascinating about this data is that I find it fascinating that it hasn't really been adopted as a use for secondary prevention. And I think it's amazing that when there's a lot of emotion or belief associated with an intervention, any sort of evidence that promotes that emotional belief is is taken up very quickly. The best example is we've had a belief that lower targets in blood pressure are better. We've had that for decades, despite evidence not necessarily supporting that until the SPRINT trial came along and showed that, yes, lower targets of blood pressure are better for cardiovascular disease and for death, but have a whole host of side effects. And yet, because that trial sort of uh, helped propagate this strong emotional belief, it's been pretty widely adopted. I know the AHA um, guidelines in America have recently just changed their targets. So, whereas this, has a very similar outcome profile to the SPRINT trial. It shows that there is a benefit in cardiovascular disease, there is a benefit in death, but there is an increase in side effects, yet it hasn't been widely adopted. And I find that quite fascinating how certain pieces of evidence are adopted quickly and certain others aren't adopted.
0: Well, I, I think your point is very well taken there. We all look for our own confirmation of our beliefs and when we find it, we're happier and we uptake things. And I think in the context of you know, what I give this to my patients. I agree. I often don't use myself because I seem to sort of abuse myself in some ways, but I certainly think about what I give this to my mom or my dad. And I think from this trial, I think, you know, in the right bleeding risk context, I would absolutely give it to either of them. And therefore, I'd give it to most of my patients so long as they were the right selection of individuals. And I think that's where the tipping point for me are the nuances of applying the COMPASS trial as opposed to for all patients with uh, cardiovascular disease.
1: Absolutely. I I would be very scared if this got a blanket treatment for all those with cardiovascular disease, especially as I forgot to mention that they excluded anyone with a high risk of bleeding. So that's an important factor.
0: All right, well, that's great. Uh, We haven't covered the COMPASS trial and we sort of felt a little bad that it slipped under our radar for a while. So we appreciate you bringing that forward. Let's move on to the article that I chose for this week. Um, This is looking at a little bit more of an innovative approach to treatments in different populations. And today we're going to be talking about Blood pressure control. Speaking of blood pressure targets, etc., in black barber shops, and this was published by Dr. Victor and crew uh, in the New England Journal in March of 2018.
1: Okay, great. So, what's the bottom line then, Karen?
0: So, Dan, this was a randomized trial of just over 300 black male adults who were attending their local barber shops. So, think non-traditional healthcare settings as this kind of a trial, and they found that if you had a collaborative pharmacist-led intervention that included the barbers to recommend and push sort of antihypertensive drug prescribing to these individuals with hypertension, you saw a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure by about 20 millimeters of mercury on average, and a 50% difference in achieving target blood pressure controls appropriately for their different subclasses when you compare that to just simple encouragement by educated barbers to make lifestyle modifications and attend their GP appointments, etc., that's great. So w- why did you choose this trial? A couple of reasons. One, I thought it was a really neat avenue to try to be innovative in healthcare and move interventions, you know, outside of traditional healthcare settings. Hypertension is still a global epidemic and still a global problem, and particularly in certain subpopulations, even in developed countries. And so non-Hispanic black men one of those specific populations, and they're they're grossly underrepresented in hypertension trials as well. So this was a neat way to try to get around some of the socioeconomic challenges that face different cultures across the world in receiving care in traditional
1: healthcare settings and moving that outside to these non-traditional settings. Exactly. No, that's, that's great. And I really commend the trialists for conducting such a trial and trying to look outside the box of how we, you know, appeal... To patient's health. So tell us, what was the design of the study?
0: Mm-hmm. Not all healthcare occurs in doctor's offices, it seems. So to get at that idea, they did an unblinded but cluster randomized clinical trial in Los Angeles in the United States. And they did this cluster randomization because you could have one barber shop doing two of the same patient's for different arms of the trial, and that would sort of mess things up. So you had to kind of assign each barbershop to one of intervention versus the other as opposed to the patients. And so therefore the barbershop, if you think about it, was the unit of randomization. So they included patients who were regular patrons of these barbershops, and that meant that they had to have at least one or more haircut every six weeks. That's pretty frequent. And they did that for six months. So they had a you know a longitudinal relationship with these barbershops. The individuals uh, had to be non-Hispanic Black men, aged 35 to 79 years of age, and they had to be hypertensive, so their systolic blood pressure was greater than 140 millimeters of mercury on more than two uh, screening days for the trial. Women and persons receiving dialysis or chemotherapy were excluded, but otherwise a fairly open, pragmatic trial in that sense.
1: Great. Okay. So, tell us what were the interventions, or the you know, what were the interventions for this trial?
0: Yeah, so these barbershops were assigned to the intervention, which was to encourage pharmacists follow-up and measure of blood pressure. So pharmacists regularly would review each participant's treatment with physician hypertension specialists. So you had sort of a physician overseeing things in the background. But the pharmacists prescribed the drugs. The pharmacists measured the blood pressure. They encouraged the lifestyle changes, and they monitored the blood work with a blood pressure target of less than 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And how they actually sort of practical aspects of the drug prescribing it would be that the pharmacist would prescribe two drug therapies that insurance would approve and that was preferably amlodipine plus a long-acting angiotensin receptor blocker or ACE inhibitor and then to use long-acting thiazide diuretics like indapamide as the preferred third drug if that was necessary compare that to the control group where the participating barbershops received instructions about blood pressure and that was passed on to the patients. And so these were these instructional information type discussions that occurred between an individual and their barber. Everybody on both arms got baseline blood pressure measurements. Everybody got follow-up calls at three months and repeat blood pressure checks at six
1: months. Okay, great. So what were the primary outcomes that they were looking for?
0: So, a very objective measure of systolic blood pressure at six months. And they just wanted to see what your blood pressure was after you had these different interventions. The secondary outcomes they looked at were the diastolic pressure, the rates, uh, proportion of individuals who met blood pressure targets, that 130 over 80. They counted the number of antihypertensive drugs that were uh, required to get people to those targets. And of course, they measured adverse drug reactions like AKI and other reported symptoms due to antihypertensive medications. And they also actually measured some self-rated health and patient engagement measures too. So kind of a, a neat broad spectrum of things. Great. Okay. So what did they find? So as far as the main findings and this primary outcome, baseline blood pressure was a median of 153 on 91 millimeters of mercury. And at six months, the outcome time frame, the control arm reduced their blood pressure by about nine millimeters of mercury. So just good old-fashioned education and encouragement can improve people's blood pressure. But if we look at the targets, 89% of individuals in the intervention arm versus 32% achieved a blood pressure of less than 140 over 90. And 63 versus 11% achieved a blood pressure of less than 130 over 80. So quite impressive results, with a significant systolic blood pressure reduction of about 20 millimeters of mercury compared to that nine millimeters of mercury reduced in the intervention arm.
1: That's very impressive. And how many medications were, on average, were each of the two groups on?
0: Yeah, and you know, I think to get blood pressure under control, it's not just magic. It takes medication in these cases. And so, as expected, there was almost twice as many medications per person in the intervention arm. So about two and a half versus one and a half. Or thereabouts in each arm, respectively. Okay, great.
1: All right. So, can you tell us any important limitations or any thoughts you had on this trial that might, uh, you know, restrict the use of this into everyday practice? Well, a
0: couple of things to mention. So, for six months, pharmacists and some barbers measured blood pressure monthly to monitor drug therapy in the intervention group. As you're obviously titrating up medications and adding more, you're, you're you know keeping a closer eye on things. And that wasn't done to the same extent in the control group. So, you know, if you're monitoring things more closely, you might be more likely to achieve the outcome rather than just adding on the drugs and and having the pharmacists involved. So there's one one concern of a a source of bias. The other thing to say is pharmacists targeted an in-barbershop blood pressure of less than 130 on 80, but primary care providers will often target an in-office blood pressure of less than 140 over 90. So... How you apply this intervention in barbershops to uh, other care settings may be different. And the last thing I would say is your comparison group, while appropriate for the setting, is sort of an educational uh, intervention. It might have been interesting to compare blood pressure control to individuals who were randomized to attend their their regular family physician um, and sort of capture how frequently that was done to see uh, which was more
1: effective. I agree. That would have been... That would have been really good. Also, it would have been great if they had a, a qualitative sort of element to this trial, just to get the opinions of the participants on how they preferred this model of care versus the traditional model of care, where they go and see their, their healthcare profession. I think that would have added a nice little sweetener.
0: I think it would have been extra sweet for sure. And and they do have a couple of comments from the participants that are in the, in the data supplement, but not a formal qualitative study in any way. So I, I agree it would have would have made it a bit richer but what are you going to do
1: <laughs> okay so take us home how would you summarize this trial and and how would you how would you use this to impact on your everyday practice
0: so i i think at a larger level than just should we do things in barber shops i think for me this trial really demonstrates that let's call them community outreach interventions, can be really effective means to improve health. And in this case, blood pressure control in certain populations. And certainly there's evidence in HIV care that uh, these types of community outreach interventions can be effective as well. So we should start to think about other ways to talk to and engage patients outside of our offices, so to speak. Now, there probably isn't a one-strategy-fits-all approach. This trial relies on regular visits to barbershops and patients who demonstrate loyalty to it. So you you have to understand your population that you're dealing with to be able to design effective community outreach interventions. But as a proof of principle overall, I think this is a really innovative way to treat a different uh, population than those that are studied traditionally in randomized trials. And I think it's really an interesting and inspiring trial overall. So I I do tip my hat to the
1: authors. Absolutely. I, I agree. I loved it. Um, great, thanks for that, Kira. Perfect. Well, Dan, uh, I know you're you're a long time listener,
0: so you know it's my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're
1: reading about. What's catching your eye down under in Australia? So um, this might be your favorite part of the segment, but I, I'm not a big reader. The only thing I really read is is sadly trials and journals. So <laughs> so I picked an interesting trial that came out of the BMJ last year. And it was actually done by a medical student, which made me feel really, really humbled. And basically what she did was she wanted to see for all the medications that the FDA approves on what's called, you know, on limited evidence. So often the FDA will approve a drug on limited evidence with the sort of proviso, with the understanding that there will be some sort of continuing evaluation after the initial pre-approval called a life cycle evaluation. And this author went on to look at how many of these drugs that are approved by the FDA with limited evidence then go on and actually carry out further trials. So there was FDA had managed to approve 117 novel drugs between 2005 and 2012, and then she followed up 5.5 years later to see how many of these drugs then published further data and It turns out, firstly, that 73% of these 117 drugs that were approved with limited evidence only had surrogate marker evidence. They didn't have any clinical outcomes for their diseases. So you can imagine the FDA said, yep, we'll approve it on the basis that it seems safe and there is a need, um, but we want you to continue doing trials. So how many of them continue doing trials? Well, amazingly, 35% never did another single trial after this approval. Amazingly, also, was that the vast majority who did other trials, on average, each of these drugs had between one to three trials um, published after this approval. And amazingly, the majority of those were further surrogate market trials. Um, And what I find very interesting was she then looked at how many of the trials, how many of them had done a good quality randomized controlled trial after it was approved, as I guess they promised the FDA, and how many of those subsequent randomized controlled trials supported the approval indication? And guess what, Kieran? It was between two to five percent of the medications that were approved then later conducted a randomized controlled trial that actually went on to prove the effect of the indication. So I guess this just speaks to the fact that uh, we shouldn't be rushing to adopt new medications without good quality evidence. And I was just fascinated at how people tend to get approved and then fall off the radar. Wow, that is surprising. Uh,
0: Well, I was reading about, in the spirit of the innovative trial that I covered for the week, new category of prescription medical treatments, well, things that we would call digital therapeutics. And Dan, these are essentially mobile apps, like on your phone, your iPhone, you know, you're playing Jeweled or something like that. But these mobile apps are prescribed by your doctor, Um, And they're tested and approved by the FBA as medical therapy, speaking of medical therapies that are approved by the FDA. And later this year, an app called Reset will be able to be used as the first mobile medical app to treat substance use disorder. The device actually delivers cognitive behavioral therapy to patients and teaches the user skills that aid in the treatment of substance use disorder intended to increase abstinence from substance use and increase retention in outpatient therapy programs. So I thought that was another innovative, neat therapy that utilizes technology these days in an innovative way to try to help our patients. But if it's effective, we'll have to wait and see. And I have no idea if they're planning a randomized trial to do so. Wow. Fascinating. Well, watch this space. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you, and we look forward to having you back in the future. Great. Thanks so much, Kieran. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable follow us on twitter at roundstable or on facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind the scenes members thank you to our producer emily hughes audio editor emilio Garcia flores communications director anthony Maher, segment developer shaliza Halani and faculty mentor and founder of The Round's Table, Amol Burma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us?